right, go ahead and pull out your Bibles this morning, something to take notes with, because church isn't over, amen? Are you still glad you're sitting next to the person you're sitting next to? Maybe we should put like halftime in place, you know, snack break, you can switch if you don't like the person you're sitting next to. (laughs) Take something to take notes out, or take out something to take notes with, is what I was trying to say there. Best case scenario, God says something you want to remember. Worst case scenario, you got something to draw with if you get bored. We are starting a new series this morning that I'm really excited about. Last week was our first service in this building. Was anybody here last week for service number one? Such a blast. And uh, we uh, preached a message last week that what w- it was what we believe and what we really want the banner of this building to be. The title of the message was Come to Jesus. It sounds so simple, but it's eternally deep and significant for our lives. We don't want to just have a building. We want, to, we want to see this building filled with people coming to Jesus, starting with me. I want to come to Jesus. Anybody else want to come to Jesus? We talked about how this invitation of God to come to Jesus, it's for everyone, and if it's for everyone, then that means it's also for you. And there's always the invitation to come to Jesus. And that's what we want every car to see when they drive by this building, every person to hear when they pull in this parking lot, every heart to experience when they're in the walls of this room and this kids' rooms and everywhere around here that the invitation is just come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. That's what we want to be. This morning, the series that I want to start with, we're going to take the next three weeks, and it's building off of last week's invitation, and this series is a question. It's a question that builds off of the invitation to come to Jesus, and so you can write it at the top of your notes. The series, part one, is what do you expect? What do you expect? What, what do we expect when we come to Jesus? Because I, I believe that when you hear this invitation, come to Jesus, if you've been in church, then it sounds like you know, most things you've heard in church before. If you're not familiar with church, then you're probably thinking, well, of course church says come to Jesus. That's great. It sounds so simple, but what if it is really like everything? What if Jesus really is bigger than we think that he is, and he's more sufficient than we think that he is? What if, what if there's more to Jesus than we think? And so, so when, when we extend this invitation, come to Jesus, I think we've got to address our expectations to see if we're actually going to take up the invitation. Because your expectation, based, your expectation of an invitation will determine if you take it or not. Like if you get invited to a party that you think is going to be super lame, if you're expecting it to be lame, you're probably not going to accept the invitation. You're going to come up with a really good excuse about how busy you are and stuff, right? And I believe that if, if we're going to come to Jesus, then we need to have the right expectation. If we don't have the right expectation, we won't even take up the invitation. Because, you know, like if God isn't even real, if, if Jesus isn't even real, if you don't even expect him to be real, then why come? Why, why come to Jesus? If, God, if, if you're going to come to Jesus and you don't expect him that he's even going to do anything, why come? If God's just going to beat me down for some decisions that he disagrees with in my life, like why come? Why come? And, and, and I think that we're living in a world with some uh, lack of expectation and even many times bad expectation. And we extend the invitation, come to Jesus, and the question is why? Why would I come to Jesus? What should I expect? What do you expect? This is what I want to talk about the next few weeks. What do you expect when you come to Jesus? So to kick off the series this morning, I want to title this message specifically, He's Better Than You Think. He's better than you think. And I've heard, I think you've probably heard this too, that first impressions are everything, right? 
So uh, in talking about Jesus, what to expect from him and making this claim that he's better than you think, uh, I want to go back to first impressions. I want to start at the very beginning in the book of Genesis chapter 2 this morning. I want you to open up there. I want to go back to the beginning of all of time, and I want to look through the story in the Bible that gives us our first impression of God. Our first impression of God. Our first impression of who God is. Our first impression of what God is like. Our first impression of of who we are and who we are to God. And finally, what I think is a massive question that I think every heart is asking whether you have language for it or not. Not only who is God, not only who am I, but also how does God interact with me? How does God want to interact with me? So Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to start. We're going to jump around between Genesis 2 and 3. We're going to read a couple of verses in 2, a chunk in 3, and then skip some verses and go with it. So you'll, you'll, you're smart people. You'll be able to figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, you can just look at the screen. We'll be all right. Because Austin Bontrager's got you covered in the back. So Genesis 2, we're going to read a few verses as we get started going into the first impressions of who God is, who we are, and how he wants to interact with us. We're at the very beginning of the Bible, so if you're new to the Bible, it's like page 3, uh, actually page 2 for me, so you can start there. We're at the beginning of the Bible, and, and Genesis uh, 1, and then leading up to where we're going to start in chapter 2, is the story of creation. And I'm sure you know the story, but uh, in verse 1, there is nothing that exists, only God, and he decides, I'm going to create. So he speaks, and just from his voice, galaxies come out, and the universe is created, and he creates everything, and he sets up everything the way it ought to be, and he's been creating and creating, and then he's been doing all these amazing things, but then he decides to cap off creation with his, his Mona Lisa, human beings. Sometimes I look at us, and I think, really? That was the best? I don't know. <laughs> But this is what God was going for. He makes humans. He makes humans, and he says, I've made humans. I've made man in my own image. Big, big claim. God makes us in his own image, and he makes us to be in relationship with him. He uh, puts humans in this uh, paradise called the Garden of Eden is how we know it. And it's this place of complete freedom and relationship with God where you're living out existence in the presence of God because he made us in relationship. They have very minimal rules and boundaries to stay within the limits of what God created them for. And we pick up the story in chapter 2, summarizing these minimal rules, and then we'll jump to chapter 3 as we read about what happens next after God speaks and universes and people and the garden. Then what? Starting in verse uh, 15 of chapter 2, The Bible says this, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Verse one of chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, Uh, neither, oh gosh, you shall not, we're okay, we're going to go back. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Verse 4, we made it. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely, you will not surely die. Anybody else want to do this? Okay. 
Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I I heard a sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 20, the man, okay, so verse 10, there's a conversation that happens between God and Eve and Adam, and we'll skip to verse 20. Then the, then the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Hello. No wonder that was hard to get through. There's a lot there. Have you ever thought that someone said something only to find out that they said something different? I remember uh, in high school almost getting sent home from youth group camp. Because me and my friends, we thought the leader said, you can jump off the bridge into the lake. (laughs) Come to find out, they said, you cannot jump off the bridge into the lake. Almost got sent home. I can't tell you how many times there's been things like Heather sending me to the grocery store, and I thought she said to grab one thing. Anybody else? (laughs) Turns out that's not what she said. She asked me to grab something completely different. I thought that she said that, but that was not the case. And as I look back on my life, and I'm sure that maybe as you look back on your life, that there's many moments where you have thought you heard one thing, and then you even made decisions based on that thing that you thought you heard, or you followed through on something, uh, thinking that you were doing the right thing based on what you thought that you heard, but you actually had it wrong the whole time. I always thought when I read this story that what happened in this story is that God creates everything, everything's amazing, he creates man to be in relationship with him, and then Adam and Eve, you know, like we read, they, they do what they're not supposed to do, and they sin. And the rest of the story, I thought that, wait, the way this always story goes is that I, I thought what happens next is that basically the rest of Bi- the Bible and the rest of human history is essentially the story of, like, God getting really mad and kicking him out of the garden and cursing him because they're stupid and they ruined everything and like the rest of the Bible is God like trying hard enough to like not kill all of us because he's got just enough mercy to like get us to heaven one day where he's finally not mad anymore that's how I think the story goes that's how I thought the story goes and we laugh because it sounds funny especially like to say that out loud in church because you're like oh that sounds that makes God sound so bad right but that's what you probably think. That's probably how you think the story goes. That's how I always thought the story went. Anybody I've ever been around, like that's kind of the general understanding of the story of Genesis 2 and 3 and really kind of what we're in the middle of is like, man, good thing God sent Jesus because otherwise we'd be smoked. You know? 
And I think we're living in a world that when they think about God, when they look at what do you expect, come to Jesus. It's like, ah, sounds a little scary. I wonder this morning if there might be some perceptions about God that we have based on how we thought this story goes that isn't actually how the story goes. And I wonder if some of these things that we, the ways we think the story goes has impacted some of our perceptions and our expectations about what to expect from God. And I wonder that if we could just set those down and come with some fresh ears and some fresh eyes this morning to let God speak what he actually said, that some of those perceptions and some of those expectations may get a little bit of an adjustment this morning. So I figure let's talk about sin because that sounds fun, right? <laughs> talk about taking the air out of the room, right? Let's talk about sin. If you brought somebody to church this morning, you're like, not today, pastor, come on. Like, really? Okay, so seeing as this is the part of human history where sin becomes part of our reality, I think it's a great place to start in developing our theology, developing our understanding of sin and what it is and how God responds to it. Because sin and our perception of sin and our perception of how God responds to our sin greatly impacts whether or not we come to him or not. So let's start with a basic truth about sin. Let's start with a basic truth about sin. We'll kind of start like in 101. How many of you know that sin separates you from God? And he has, okay, sin separates you from God. Basic theology on sin. That's good. And that's true. That's true. Um, and that's important to know that sin separates you from God. But it's also really important to know why sin separates you from God. I always had this understanding that sin separates me from God because God can't stand to be around sin. And I'm a sinner, so God can't stand to be around me. Because I thought that what happened was that Adam and Eve sinned and God furiously tosses them out of the garden for ruining his perfect deal. The problem with that is that when I look at these verses and read this story, that what actually happened was really different than that. Really different than what I thought. Starting with this. Apparently, right off the bat, God did not seem to get the same memo that you and I got about him not being able to be around sin or associate with sinners because the first thing he does is barge through Adam and Eve's front door. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. See, I think there's a pertinent question here to ask per verse 8. And that is this, who ran from who? Because it sure seems that if I look at what it actually says, is that God ran to Adam and Adam ran from God. And I think that there's another pertinent question to ask based on this revelation that it actually says that Adam ran for God, ran from God. And this is a good question, but you, not might, you might not like it, but I think it's probably good for you because it's good for me. How many times have you thought God was distant when the reality was that you were hiding? See, sin doesn't separate you from God because it makes God hate you. Sin separates you from God because it makes you hate you. And therefore, you assume God hates you, so you run from God. 
And then you wonder, where's God? I remember halfway through my junior year of high school, I I wasn't really following God, but all of a sudden I just kind of had this sense that God wanted to do something with my life. Didn't know what that meant, didn't know what that looked like, didn't like hear it in a sermon. I I can't really explain it. It was just this thing that I was like, ah, like, man, there's something in, God wants to do something with my life. I I don't know if that makes any sense. If you felt it, you know what I'm talking about. I couldn't explain it. And I had no idea what that thing was that God wanted to do with my life. And so I got really mad at God. I got really frustrated with God because it was like he was telling me he had wanted to do this great thing with my life, but he wouldn't tell me what it was. And so I'm stuck there. It it felt like God was kind of dangling this carrot out in front of me. Like everything you're looking for, it's right here. Just run faster and you'll catch it. That's what I felt like God was doing, dangling this carrot of everything I ever wanted right in front of me. And I'm like, dude, what the heck, man? Like, I'm frustrated. Okay, yeah, you want to do something with my life? And I would get so frustrated for God. For two and a half years, I was just frustrated at God. I was frustrated at God for not saying anything, for not telling me more, for not explaining all of this stuff for how it was supposed to be. But the reality is, is that God was speaking the whole time. I was hiding. I was hiding. I had all this sin in my life that was making it really hard for me to hear God. It wasn't hard for me to hear God because God wouldn't talk to me because of my sin. It was hard for me to hear God because God was talking to me, but I was running away from him because of my sin. I couldn't hear him. I was too busy hiding, too busy living my life behind closed doors, living my life, sneaking around, doing things nobody knew about. Letting my real self come out, not not opening up my life to challenge or to input, doing things my way and not making any room to actually listen. I look back on those years and I thought, "When, when was I supposed to hear all that? Because at what point was I even listening? God, why won't you say something? And he's asking, why won't you listen? See, God doesn't desert you in your bad decisions. He actually comes to you in your bad decisions. He comes to you and he calls to you. He comes to you and he calls to you. He he comes into the garden, verse eight. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. He comes to the garden and he calls out to Adam, where are you? Verse nine, but the Lord called to the man and said to him, but the Lord called to the man, even while he was hiding, even when he was running away, even when he didn't even want God to be in the garden with him. God was in the garden, even when he was calling, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? How many of you know that when, when God asks a question like that, it's not really because he's looking for an answer. God could find Adam very, very okay by himself. God wasn't asking Adam God wasn't asking where Adam was for God. He was asking Adam where Adam was for Adam. Adam, where are you? Where are you? Why are you back there? Like, we've got a lot to do. We're supposed to go for a walk in the cool of the day. Where, why are you behind those trees? Where are you? Makes me think back to all the times that God called out to me when I was hiding behind the trees. Andrew, where are you? All those unexplainable interruptions to the trouble I was getting myself into. 
all of those close calls that really should have gone a different way. And all of those times where I'm in the middle of doing something and thinking, I don't even want to be doing this. That's God. Andrew, where are you? Where are you right now? Look around. God was asking Adam because he wanted Adam to look around and realize, Adam, you're not where you're supposed to be. You're not where you're made to be. But Adam also needed to realize that just like Adam wasn't where he was supposed to be, God wasn't where he was supposed to be either. God wasn't really asking about Adam, where are you? God was trying to make a point about God. The point that God was making to Adam and saying, Adam, where are you? Was wherever you are, I'm here too. Look around, Adam. I'm not where I'm supposed to be either. He was in the garden after Adam eats the fruit. He was in the desert after Moses kills the Egyptian. He shows up to David after he cheats on his wife. He sits at the well with the Samaritan woman. He makes breakfast on the shore for Peter after he denies him. Where's God? Where are you? We need to change how we think about God hating sin. We need to change how we think about God hating sin, not because it's not true. It's absolutely true. But because that's actually not a truth about God that we should get nervous about. That we should get nervous about like everybody outside of church realizing like, oh, don't realize that God hates sin. And we shouldn't be worried about realizing that ourselves and actually embracing that as believers that God hates sin. Like we need to stop talking about God hating sin like that's a bad thing and makes him a bad guy. God hates sin because sin is terrible and it has terrible consequences. That's why God hates sin. I'm gonna go through some reasons why God hates sin based on this story. Because we're in the beginning. God hates sin because it kills you. Genesis 2, 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I'm really glad God hates what's gonna kill me. Thank you, Jesus. Sorry for getting mad about that. <laughs> it's like Smith being like, I wanna touch the fire. It's like, dude, sorry. <laughs> I'm glad that God hates what's gonna kill me. So yeah, somehow in our minds and in the world that we're living in, like sin has gotten this awesome reputation. Like it's the greatest thing in the world and God's this like old school grumpy dad who won't let you go to the party the devil's inviting you to. Come on now. Here's what the Bible says about sin. James chapter one says this. It does. Yes. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Not awesome. Genesis 4, 7, God shows up to Cain and he says this, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. 1 Peter 5, 8 says this about our friend, sin. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is the will of the devil for your life, to eat you alive. In John 10, Jesus says this. He says, the enemy, 
your enemy. He's coming to steal and kill and destroy you. But I have come that you may have life and life abundant. Sin is not awesome. And the devil is not trying to throw you a great party. He is trying to kill you. And no matter how strong your self-will is, no matter how often you go to church, and no matter how often you think you should get your life together, as long as your expectation is that sin is going to give you a better life than Jesus will, you will not come to Jesus. And when sin doesn't deliver what it promises, when it's taken you farther than you want to go, when it's kept you longer than you want to stay, and when it's cost you more than you want to pay, it's not because God hates you. It's because the devil does. God hates sin because it kills you. And God hates sin because it makes you ashamed of things that he's not concerned about. Genesis 2.25, it says this. And the man and his wife, this is before the whole sin debacle. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Jump down to verse 3-7. They eat the fruit, then the eyes of both were open. And they knew that they were naked and they they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They'd been naked, vulnerable, exposed before God the whole time. And then Adam calls, or God calls to Adam, Adam, where are you? And Adam responds, he says, I, I heard you coming, and I'm hiding because I'm naked. And I was ashamed, and I was afraid. And he says this like, I'm naked, as if it's news to God. But look at God's response. His God's, respo- God's response is not like, what? You're naked? Oh, myself, I can't believe you. You would be running around naked this whole- Oh, my gosh. Adam, get some clothes on, boy. What does God say? That's what we think God said. But what God actually said, verse 11 who told you you were naked? In other words, duh, you've been naked the whole time. And I haven't been worried about it one bit. Who told you your weakness was a problem? Who told you being vulnerable before God was something to be scared of? Who, who told you to be ashamed of what I've known about you this whole time? Who told you? Can I tell you something about the stuff that you're ashamed of this morning? God already knows about it, and God can handle it. Touch your neighbor and say he can handle it. Verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 21, it says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. See, the truth about Adam and Eve's sin is that they had a much bigger problem than they thought they did. They had a much bigger problem than they thought they did. And and our sin is a much bigger problem than we think it is. It's a much bigger problem than we think it is. And fig leaves aren't going to fix anything. Fig leaves aren't going to fix anything. Well, okay, we don't soak fig leaves. But what's that thing you run to to cover up where you know you don't measure up? What's that thing, that, that fig leaf that you grab for and you try to sew together, you're trying to knit together this life to cover yourself up where you know you fall short, you are, and you know you fall short. That bigger paycheck, that bigger smile, that, that bigger house, that bigger dose, the smaller waist, the next episode, the next partner, vacations, hobbies, secret kids, whatever. What, what, are, the, what are the fig leaves that we're sewing together, grasping for, trying to cover up where we know we don't measure up? 
What are you reaching for? Hey, it's not working. It's not working, and you know it. That's why you have to keep going back. And God steps in right in the middle, and he says, I don't want you chasing fig leaves the whole time, the rest of your life. not going to work anyways, because, because sin doesn't strip you. Sin kills you. It wasn't a clothes problem. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And he steps in in verse 21. He steps in into their, into their fig leaf sowing party. Look at us. We'll take care of this. I'm just going to cover it up. I'm just going to cover it up. No matter how many clothes you put on, it doesn't cover up shame. He steps right in. And he pays the wages of sin himself. He himself makes the first animal sacrifice. God himself steps in and sheds the first blood for sin. And he clothes them with animal skins. It's not a fig leaf problem. Fig leaves aren't going to cover it. It's a much bigger problem than you think, guys. This costs blood. But I'll pay it from the beginning. See, this is so simple but we can get it so backwards. Sin covers you in shame. God covers you in grace. Period. God hates sin because it makes you ashamed of things he's actually not that concerned about because he can handle it. God hates sin because it distracts you. God hates sin because it distracts you. Verse 17, back to verse 17 of chapter two, it says this, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. All right, so there's like a whole bunch of freedom in what I'm about to say, and it might step on your toes a little bit, not at the beginning, but at some point. Might ruffle your feathers a little bit. You are made to know God not to know right and wrong. God never made you to even know right versus wrong. He only made you to know God. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means they had no knowledge of good and evil. See, you're made to know God, and so that means that being a Christian is not about you being right and proving everybody else wrong. It's about knowing Jesus. And, and so you don't have to live your life trying to be right about everything. You just have to live your life knowing Jesus. <laughs> yes! Because like living your life trying to be right all the time is miserable. Oh, you get so offended. And you like read Facebook posts and get worked up. Forget Facebook. It's all about Jesus. See, God made you free from, and then when he saved you, he set you free from being right, from having to be right, having to know right, having to do right, associate right, act right, live right, talk right, vote right, look right, be right. He set you free. You don't have to worry about it anymore because it's not the point. See, and sin distracts you from Jesus to make you focus on right and wrong. Which means... When you're more worked up about right and wrong than Jesus, you're wrong. <laughs> you're distracted. You're distracted. You're not living the life God called you for. He made you for something more than that. Sin is a trap. It distracts you. And this is why God hates it, because it distracts you. That's why we need to be set free. And the trap is this. Sin distracts you with what you aren't. So you can't focus on who God is. 
Who told you you were naked? Who told you you didn't have this? You didn't have that? You didn't measure? When you were just focused on me, none of this was a problem. But your sin distracts you, and it consumes you with who you aren't so that you don't focus on who God is. And God showed up in the cool of the day instead of running into him like they did every day. They run in shame to the trees. What's the significance of these trees? There was only one tree that Adam wasn't supposed to eat from, the knowledge of good and evil, which I suppose we could infer. Uh, I guess it says it actually right there, maybe. I don't know, but it's, uh, suppose you could eat from every other tree. The rule, don't eat from the one, so you can eat from the rest which means that he was allowed to eat from all, all of the other ones. So why did he go hide behind the trees? Well, he wasn't hiding in the trees because he was naked. He already had fig leaves for that. He wasn't hiding to hide himself. He was hiding in the trees because the other trees had fruit, fruit that he was allowed to eat. And so in his shame and in his brokenness, not only does he try to cover himself up, but he runs and he hides among the trees, stuffing his face with all the good fruit to try to compensate for the bad. I, I, maybe I'll just do more good stuff. Maybe I'll go to church more. Maybe I'll be nicer. Maybe I'll be a better person. And maybe I won't offend people. And maybe this will all just go away if I can do some more good things. Just give me all the fruit. And self-righteousness. It's this bottomless buffet. And it'll never satisfy the appetite you're trying to fill. And God hates the distraction of self-righteousness. He alone is righteous because it, it's, it, it traps you, stuffing your face instead of walking with Jesus. Jesus is better than we think. And as we go through this story, all this is great and good, but at least for me, there's still one big question that I have about this whole story that seems like a sticking point on like, how did God handle this whole thing? Why, so why did God kick him out of the garden? Like if he's doing all this stuff, if he's... Stepping in to cover, if he's stepping in to pull him out of the trees, why, why did he even kick him out? We're almost done. Don't worry. Verse 22 and 23, it says this, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil now, lest he reach out his hands and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground, from which he was taken. Put verse 22 up there. So in the ESV and in like the NASB translations, more like word for word translations of the Bible, verse 22 ends with this really weird punctuation, like this hyphen situation. This big hyphen or double hyphen or, or it, it almost ends with this ellipsis. Because if you go and look at the structure of the original language, how this was written down, it's, it's like there's not a complete sentence. So it's like God's having this thought, like, oh my gosh, they know good and evil now. They ate from the tree, and now they might eat from the tree of life and live forever. And he's like playing the consequences of what's going on in his mind. And it's as if God couldn't even finish the thought. He couldn't even finish the thought of you living forever like this. He's thinking about what he made you for, who he made you to be, and now the life that sin had brought you into, and now the fact that you could step into an eternal life like that, couldn't stand it. It's almost as if God gets choked up thinking about you living forever in shame 
religion, trying to be a good person. I'm distracted. Because God made you for eternal life, but not that eternal life. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus, he's heading to the cross. And he's making this announcement. And he says this phrase that I think fits really well with Genesis 3, verse 22. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the eternal life you're made for. This is the eternal life that you're made for. So why did God kick him out of the garden? Well, he couldn't, he couldn't stop at just covering your sin. He became sin. He became sin so that he could make you his very own righteousness. Why, why did he kick you out of the garden? Because he didn't just want to pull you out from the trees. He didn't, he didn't want to just stop at implementing some religion where you're trying to do more right versus wrong and be more right than everybody else. He, 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 instead of hiding behind these trees of religion and these trees of your own self-righteousness, he died on a tree. He, he cuts it down and, and, he, and he pins himself to it and bleeds all over it so that every time you try to run to those trees... You remember it's never going to work, and it's not what you're made for. He knows about it, and he can handle it. I handled it. You can't stuff yourself full enough. You can't work yourself hard enough, and you don't have to. God didn't kick them out of the garden to protect them from an angry God. He sent them out of the garden so he could finish what he started that day. Because there was work left to be done. And he aimed to finish it. It's finished. And he couldn't even finish talking about it. He couldn't even finish his thought because it was breaking him. It was breaking him. It was breaking him to realize that he had to send us out from what we were made for. I mean, he, I mean, he knew that he was going to restore everything, but he knew what it was going to cost. He knew that it would cost him his own son bringing you back to the garden. He knew, he, knew that, he knew that he would be misunderstood for it. They're not going to even understand why I'm doing this. And he knew that you might not even choose to believe it at all. But he did it anyways. He did it anyways. He knew in that moment what it was going to feel like to turn his back on Jesus on the cross. He knew what it was going to feel like to become your sin so that you could become his righteousness. And he knew, he knew that he'd be misunderstood, but he did it anyways. And of course he did. What do you expect, right? I mean, he's better than we think. I want you to stand this morning as we close. I want us to respond to Jesus. I want us to just respond in these moments together as we worship one more song. And, and I don't have this super practical thing for you to do other than put down your fig leaves. Put them down and come out from behind your trees and let God speak to you this morning. Let God show himself to you this morning. We're gonna have people off to the side of the room like we always do. Just if you need prayer for anything, they'd love to pray with you. Don't worry about what anybody else thinks. They're not perfect. We're not perfect. You're not perfect. Let's just get prayer.
If you need, if you need somebody to pray with you, don't leave without getting it. You, you may need to confess something. You may need to get something off your chest that you think is a big deal that God's actually not that concerned about. Not because it's not a big deal, but because he already knows and he handled it. And you need to get free this morning. Put down your fig leaves. Come out from behind your trees and realize that God is close. God is calling you this morning. And if you're here this morning, you need to give your life to Jesus. You've never stepped into being born again and made new by the grace of God. Don't leave without doing it because you don't have to leave without doing it. You can come to him this morning. Talk with the person who brought you. Come pray with somebody off to the side. Just find somebody. It's a great day to be made new in Jesus. I'm gonna pray as we worship, and I just wanna encourage you, open your heart in these moments together and respond, respond to what God's doing. Let him adjust your expectations. Lord, we love you, and we bless you, and we thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit. God, I ask that you would speak to every single one of us. Lord, highlight our fig leaves. Bring us out from behind our trees this morning and set us free. Lead us into the freedom that you bought for us. Consume us, not with what we think, but with who you actually are. In Jesus' name.